This is Ali Tadlawi. Welcome to Talk to Me About Food, a podcast about the forces impacting the American consumer's food choices, seen through the lens of a consumer researcher, consumer, human, me. In this show, I muse about the foods we try and we buy and explore how we are or will be making, shopping for, preparing, and even disposing of foods and beverages. On this episode of Talk to Me About Food, I explore a renewed interest in foraging the wild for edible stuff. That became my fantasy. Let's see, can I just can I find enough food out there that I can just stay out there forever? And that was my fantasy growing up, and it's still the fantasy that I kind of live now. I grew up a city boy. Most of my childhood memories are from living in the geographic heart of Tokyo, the city then with the largest population on earth. The only heavenly object my little telescope could bring into view with any clarity through the light pollution was the moon. I did stumble on Saturn once on an especially crisp night. We had no front lawn and only a patchwork of stepping stones, some bushes, and a few trees in the back. There wasn't much grass or greenery in my neighborhood either. Yoyogi Park was a few train stops away and I don't recall a green space any closer to home. There was a persimmon tree that seemed to be growing wild on the edge of an abandoned lot down the street. It never occurred to me to pick the free fruit. Later in life, in my 20s, it did occur to me once that there were things growing in the wild that were worth gathering. I trespassed on power company property to harvest several armfuls of lilac branches one late May day. The bush was 12 feet high and just as wide nestled against the fence, right up against some big piece of equipment, maybe even a generator. The floating purple blossoms filled an unused bathtub-turned-vase, and lilac fragrance filled my car for a couple of days. The closest I've come to foraging since then was picking apples in an orchard in Nebraska City, Nebraska, the birthplace of Arbor Day. In a way, this experience was as remote from foraging in the wild as it could be. Picking fruit from trees planted as part of a monumental effort to colonize this part of the Great Plains. Arbor Day was set aside by the Nebraska legislature in 1872 as a holiday to plant trees, not to forage. Still, the experience was memorable. We were outside on a bright, cold morning engulfed in fall colors and the smell of leaves and decomposing apples rustling through branches and poking through tall grass for Passover gems. We made it a challenge to collect the best fruit. Hunting and gathering is in our DNA. Very few of us in America subsist on doing either one these days. Major disruptions raise a profile of both activities. The financial crisis of the late 2000s is an example. The current pandemic is another. COVID-19 has not only reduced income for tens of millions of Americans, it also led to shortages of staple foods in the beginning. The disruptions in the food supply chain, which is a vast network built on getting all sorts of food quickly and seamlessly from one end of the earth to the other, exposed some vulnerability. So there's been a lot of talk about building local food networks to safeguard our access to food. 
an increase in the number of headlines and in the number of books published on growing your own food suggests some of us want to take food self-reliance to the individual level. Seed catalog companies were out of product in the summer of 2020, and you couldn't find chicks to purchase either. I explored the idea of growing your own food last year in a dedicated Talk to Me About Food episode. In that story, I looked at examples of a food forest or food garden where humans plan out, plant, and harvest from perennial food sources like fruits, nuts, edible greens, and and mushrooms. This permaculture-based approach is a smart complement to annual agriculture. I was also intrigued by the idea of foraging in the wild, of harvesting what life produces on its own and leaves us for the taking season after season, year after year. I recently reached out to two expert foragers who forage very different ecosystems. Twyla Casador is in Arizona and Sam Thayer is in Wisconsin. The urge to grow, to, to bring to life something edible, visually pleasing, aromatic stirs this time of year, even or maybe especially for those who only have a sun-warmed balcony or just room for a window box. All you need is a container with a hole in it, reasonably fertile dirt and seeds or seedlings, and patience. The 83% of Americans who live in urban areas, this from the United Nations Population Division in 2018, can grow something this way. At least 35% do at least this, and many Americans a lot more. The median garden size is 75 square feet, according to the National Gardening Association. But gathering food in tamed urban settings? Can the vast majority of us forage near where we live? It would seem no, but I'm wrong. You think that most people have ready access to a number of species um, almost no matter where they are? Yes, absolutely. Now, it's going to vary by where you are, but everybody yeah. has ready access to some, some good species. My starting point that I recommend for people is simple. Um, you find a plant at a place you frequent. It might be your backyard. It might be the sidewalk crack out in front of where you work. It might be a park that you walk your dog. Find a plant that you see a lot and learn what it is. And once you learn what it is, then find out if it's edible. Now, the chances are about 60 to 70% that common plant in an area frequented by humans is going to be edible. So there's a really good chance you've learned an edible plant. The worst thing that happened is you learned a plant that's not edible, but you learned a lot about plants and you learned about the process of learning. That was Sam Thayer. He dedicates much of his workday to foraging, educating people about foraging or writing about it. His best-selling book, The Forager's Harvest, A Guide to Identifying, Harvesting, and Preparing Edible Wild Plants, is one of the must-haves in the field. Sam here describes the role of foraging for him and his family. How much of what you uh, of your diet comes from what you forage, do you think? It's probably been steady right about half for oh. 25 years, 30 years. It's fluctuated. It's like now I have three kids that I feed, and so that takes up quite a bit of my foraging effort. Um, they're not really foraging a lot for their own themselves yet um so uh yeah it's, it's, it's right half for our family for our whole family not just me yeah yeah sure and and what is it made up of like what are the things that you i, I guess it varies by season this is in most food economies there's a few staple items that are the majority of those forage calories and you know they are um wild rice maple syrup 
and hickory nuts. You know, right there is like a basic starch, you know, an oil source, and, you know, then a sweetener. And that's a big portion of our calories right there. We we harvest a lot of berries every year that we either dry into fruit leather or um, make into juice or just freeze. Blueberries and service berries are probably the two main ones. Some years, you know, we get a ton of blackberries or hmm. some black huckleberries. So it varies more by year than by season. Uh, you know, well, I just pursue whatever's in great quantity. We eat a lot of wild plums because they do really, really well where we are. We have hmm. them all over our property. Um, you know, we we can them, make make juice. Uh, we make plum, apple, fruit leather. Um, we also do a lot of gardening. I have an orchard here, and we have a garden, and we raise a few chickens and duck eggs. So, you know, there's a lot of homegrown food that's not foraged. But in the spring, there's, you know, we eat a lot of greens, a lot more greens than most people do. I think it's uh, a really healthy way to eat. So for, for probably two months of the year, we, we eat greens, uh, you know, in pretty big quantities. And then we have other things that we really like, but we don't eat in great quantities because they're not really common where we are, or they're a yeah. little bit too labor-intensive to make a staple food. I absolutely love lotus nuts, um, but we don't live next to a good lotus patch. So I, I eat them and love them, but I, I eat them a few times a year, not as much as I'd like to. Um, or Wapato or Arrowhead, this is a plant with a tuber, a marsh plant that is just delicious, one of my favorite starchy foods. But again, I, I get to collect it a couple days a year mostly, and not at all this year. I didn't get to collect any. So, so there's really a small number that are the majority of our calories, but we probably eat three or 400 different species of edible plants over the course of a year. Wow, really? That, and then so that includes things that you're that you're growing as well in your garden in orchard. Well, no, I mean wild plants. There's probably wild. three or four hundred really? different wild things we eat over the course of the year. But you know that diversity of knowledge of food plants is really part of I would say was the normal human experience until quite recently. You know, there's a lot of recipes um, from. Uh, older European peasant cooking that might involve like 16 or 18 you know, wild leafy greens in this recipe. Um, and you just don't see that today. I mean, you couldn't find 18 species of leafy greens in most grocery stores. No, for sure. But, but I can, on my property, at one, on one morning, go out and probably pick 35 or 40 species of leafy greens. And I don't have a particularly high diversity here. It's just That's just what the world is like when you recognize what's out there. Twyla Casador is a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe. She's a forager, food educator, and advocate for indigenous food sovereignty. Twyla was raised foraging. It is her inheritance and a cherished way of being. My name is Twyla Casador. I am from the San Carlos Apache tribe. I live in Bylas, Arizona, and I am a traditional harvester and forager. <laughs> I was born with it. My parents both work, but we live on the outside of town. And so they didn't, they pound on food stamp or anything. They didn't, I didn't even know that stuff existed. They planted everything. And my dad was a hunter. Okay. So we always had meat in the freezer or the fridge. And we also had meat drying. We collected wild plants. And for myself, I grew up believing that was normal. I mean, it is normal. And so. it was just, um, so we grew up with it. My grandparents, I grew up with my grandma Maud. Her name is Maud Hinton. 
And she was always, you know, out there foraging for medicinal plants. So and oh, we would good. go along with her. So it was really fun. So I grew up with it. You grew up with it. Yeah, sure. Um, and so tell me the kinds of things that you, that you forage. Oh, gosh, there's so many things. Roots, tubers, fungi, minerals, um, I say berries, nuts, different type of water, depending where you go. You could collect water from the mountains and from the springs. Okay. The plants would be different types of bulbs, um, onions, tubers. Oh, it's all seasonal. Green, lots of greens. There's a lot of greens out there, wild greens. Sure, sure. So it varies by season. So like, yeah, it's not, seasonal. What, Very what seasonal. Find, never the same. Never the same. Never talk on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, like, what's in season now? What are you finding when you're outside now? Oh, right now there there isn't a whole lot because of no. the climate. I mean, because of the weather. Yeah. So normally at this time, exactly right now, I would have been out foraging some of the wild greens and some of the first onions that are blossoming. But right now they're probably like two or three weeks late. I'm I'm predicting about three weeks off because of the amount of moisture that we didn't get. I and see. a lot of it's really based on the moisture. So we have some rain clouds coming in. So I'm really happy for that. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Then this might be a kind of a hard question to, to answer, but I'm thinking about how much of what you eat comes from what you forage. Probably like 30%. Really? Um, yeah, about 30% of the stuff I forage I actually use at home. Then you're looking at the other 40% is whatever we grow. Okay. 25% uh, is of the wild game that my family brings in. Okay. And the rest, you know, you just have to purchase flour. Grease, salt. salt, baking powder, sugar, sugar. coffee. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely coffee. Coffee's the big one. But they're desert coffee, so I love the desert coffee. Oh, really? Yeah. There's there are different plants that grow that, like these right around us. There's coffee around us. Oh, okay. Wow. And we call them cowboy coffee. When you live surrounded by this abundance, foraging can really provide staples in your diet. But just because you can, why expend the time and effort foraging? For one thing, there's a lot of variety in the sheer number of foods you can gather within your locale. Sam told me that he eats three to four hundred forage species of plants over the course of any given year. Imagine that. Wildfoodies.com says there are more than 230 species of edible plants in the mid-Atlantic region. So, Philadelphians and Washingtonians and all the suburbanites and exurbanites around and between them can find species of carrots, sorrel, dock, edible grass, lettuce, mallow, mint, mustard, cress, and thistles in their neck of the woods. This covers all shades of green that I can think of and a good swath of the rest of the color spectrum too. A range of tastes and textures and smells... I got to thinking whether there was a difference between wild and grown. And Twyla and Sam definitely both think so. If there's something like a, a tuber that you find in the wild versus one that you grow, is there a difference, you think? Oh, yeah. A big difference. Yeah, taste is one. Okay. There's some tubers out there. It's just so, so good, but... 
you can find equivalents, yes, but it won't taste as great as it, it is because you see people that grow their own potatoes in some places and they'll always say, oh, this potato tastes so much different than the store. And that's the same with the onions that you collect out in the wild. Yeah. They're so tiny. I mean, they're like this tiny thing. They're not the bulb, bulb but they're the tinier onions, but the size of a pea. Okay. And its flavor is the size of one whole big onion <laughs> that you buy in the store. And you only need one of those to flavor your stew. The wild things tend to be smaller. Um, yeah. They tend to be more chemically dense. And they tend to taste better if they are anything but a leafy green. So the, the fruits and berries and stuff tend to taste better. Um, and people recognize this, right? A wild blueberry is better than a store-bought blueberry generally. You also have the opportunity to collect them at the ideal stage of growth in which they generally have a better texture and flavor. So mm-hmm. um, with our, we think about how we've changed our domestic crops. We've made them larger. We've made them less nutritionally and chemically dense. And, and it's really important to understand those two things go together. Less chemicals your body doesn't want combined with fewer chemicals that your body does want. In nature, they always come together, and that's why we have a liver, and it's big, you know. Um, <laughs> and people forget that, but so, so we instinctively avoid chemicals in our food, which means we instinctively avoid nutrition in our food. We instinctively avoid leafy greens, and so we instinctively avoid the most nutritionally dense food that exists. Um, but also, what we a lot of people don't recognize is that something like cabbage or lettuce or celery, we have bred them to hold on to their juvenile characteristics for Hmm. several weeks to extend the harvest period, right? Mm. Um, And uh, we've done that with animals too. They hold their juvenile characteristics into adulthood, but they are not ever at this perfect ideal stage that a wild relative would be at. So like there's a whole bunch of wild celery-like vegetables, Mm -hmm. but they're way more tender than celery, but the window at which you can harvest them is shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, so it tends to be, it tends to be that each one of these I prefer very much over celery, but there's a narrower window in when I can get it. Interesting. And it's the same with the, like a lot of the leafy greens, you know, so some people will try a certain leafy green in the wild and they've identified it correctly. And they're like, oh, this just isn't good. And a lot of times they have not picked up the slightly trickier skill of knowing exactly when you eat it. Because if you have asparagus in your garden, you don't eat old asparagus. You don't eat branchy asparagus. Right. But people will go into foraging thinking as long as they got the right species, everything is fine. And you're not going to, you know, there's not going to be some negative health effect. It's just you aren't going to like that food. What I learned from Sam and Twyla is that foraging is not just about more nutritious, better tasting, and free, with some effort, food. There's a generalized foraging experience. It can be summed up like this. It's just deeply satisfying. It's like, why do people watch a sunset? Why is it that if there is a lake and there is farmland, the people will settle by the lake and farm that land, you know, like, like they want to be by the lake, they find it pleasant, right? It just satisfies right. this deep, this, this deep, um, it's, just, it's, it's, it's part of the essence of being human. And once people do it, they just find that they very much want to do it. They, they like the experience. So, so it's, it's a kind of intangible, instinctive thing. It's not a logical experience. Now we could go down the list and I, I you know, have people rank 
um, you know, why do you do this? And, and I'll get different answers. Some people say it's healthier food. Some people say they like the food better. Uh, you know, some people will say that they're saving money. Um, and all those things are true. They're all legitimate. But yeah. everybody agrees that they just like the experience of doing it. It's very healing. It's healing. Yeah. You're talking okay. to my like for myself. You know, I experienced uh, violence as a young child, and I don't dread on that. But forging helped heal me without putting me in a clinical setting. Without me, like you know, it really helped heal me. Okay, see, I drifted away for a while. I say for a long period of time, and I went on to this artificial, superficial life, thinking, "Oh, this is a better life," you know, doing what all these other people are doing and getting involved with alcohol and drugs and all those things. Right. But it took away what I know now is only a small amount of things that I wish I, I had really took time to learn more mm. because I share my experience because when I went back and talked with my elders about traditional foods and they mm. took me out to the landscape, they didn't say, oh, this is for your mental health. Let's go over here. Right. They just took me out and let me be me mm. and let me be surrounded by the birds, the wind, the, everything. Mm. And in its own natural way, I felt, I'm serious, I never felt love. So I went out there and you just feel that love of nature around you and embracing you. And slowly but slowly, it, it really helped me heal. Mm. And doing this, just this itself is a healing process. Yeah. And for people to to see the effect on people, sharing this and taking young people is what I do. I take a lot of people out in my community, and they share the same experience. Something wakes up in people, mm. and they're very proud and not embarrassed of who they are as indigenous. Despite these reasons to forge, it's not clear that the current attention it's getting will last beyond this disruption and translate into more people foraging on an ongoing basis. Sam believes that over the long term, there are fewer and fewer folks foraging. The overall trend has been, you know, I think a steady decline. Um, but uh, it seems like there's maybe been an upswing. It, it's, hard, it's hard for me to say. It's been in different populations. So I think that rural populations forage less than they did 30 years ago. But it's more popular in urban communities. You know, I talk to old timers uh, about particularly poke, which is very common, very popular vegetable in the South. Everybody over 65 that lived in a rural place, the Southern two thirds, you know, from Texas East and, you know, like Indiana South, everybody in a rural area knew that plant and most of them ate it as a child. Yeah. Almost none of them eat it today and almost none of today's generation eats that plant. It's a little bit hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of people out picking blueberries still. You know, our wild rice license sales have, like, doubled in the last eight or ten years in Wisconsin and Minnesota. So there's something real going on, but it's hard to put my finger on how strong it is and what exactly it is. So how much edible wild food in the U.S. goes uneaten by humans? Sam shared with me that only one quarter of 1% of sugar maples in Wisconsin are tapped. Not that we can subsist on maple sugar alone, but this does dimensionalize the potential of food in the wild. 
Think about all the wild tubers that just dissolve into the soil, not rooted out by hand or snout. Countless tons of greens that wilt in the sun. Billions upon billions of acorns that harden in the cold. According to a 2020 study published in Nature, there are 228 billion trees in the U.S. Say 10 billion of these are oak trees. That's a heck of a lot of nut meat. It seems there is an abundance of hidden food in plain view. Those of us with ready access to the woods and fields, to the mountainsides and valleys, canyons and creek banks, have more to gain from foraging, but even those of us who are city-bound can benefit. There are plenty of how-to books on foraging. Foraging Foraging.com looks like a decent resource as well. Now, foraging is very much a grassroots thing. I find 77 foraging groups on Meetup, scattered around the U.S. There are the uh, Wild Foodies of Philadelphia, Portland Mushroom Hunters in Oregon, Foothill Foragers in Chino, California, the Texas Wild Mushrooming Group in Austin, and Piedmont Mycological in Durham, North Carolina, and many foraging groups and pages on Facebook as well. Twyla suggests seeking out local cultural centers or museums and tribal community elders for advice and guidance. Farmers are also a great resource, she says. Farmers know what grows and what doesn't around where you live. At the very least, foraging can provide another connection point we all need with nature, even if it doesn't add a lot to our pantries or fridges. A 2018 study published in the Journal of Urban Forestry and Urban Greening estimates that 27% of urban area is now covered with impervious surfaces. Think concrete and asphalt. This number is growing, which is probably not a good thing. But it also means that 73% of urban ground cover is still permeable. You know how weeds can emanate from the smallest of cracks. They don't need much a connection point, and a collection point for you, too. So I tell people when they come to my workshops, like, hey, I can get you excited. I can give you some good information, but I can just give you that push. You have to do most of the work. So I'll give you everything I can this weekend. You know, so if you can't find that person in your area, don't despair. You know, it's it's that fear that, like, that first step is the hardest for people, Um, and when you get past that, that fear kind of dissipates. The fear of foraging is for the non-foragers. The foragers aren't afraid. You know, you'll never be able to look at a green thing without thinking, "Hey, can you eat that thing?" <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just like all of a sudden, like it's like when you have a child, and, and there's a part of your instincts that had never manifested before. It's the same thing. You start foraging. There's a part of your instinct that's just deep part of you that just comes right out. It was like you're like, "How on earth did I ever suppress this?" and you look at the whole world differently. Well, that's all I've got for you on this episode of Talk To Me About Food. Thanks for listening, and I do hope you come back for more. Please also check out www.talktomeaboutfood.com to read related musings about the forces impacting our food choices on my blog. (laughs) 